Case number 22-7167, Diana P. Valley et al. Appellants versus Anthony Scaragunis, Governor et al. Ms. Perron for the appellants, Mr. Krause for the appellees. We'll hear from you when you're ready, Ms. Perron. Good morning, Your Honors. If you want to, the um, podium, the lectern can be lowered by a switch over on the right. It's okay. <laughs> Used to being a little bit on the shorter side. Um, please, the court, Claudette Ferran, appearing on behalf of appellants, Diana Vallier et al. Today, appellants argue the appeal of the district court's erroneous ruling turning the established law of summary judgment on its head by using an anomalous interpretation and perverse application of the legal standard to a seemingly one-eyed review of the record. As established by decades of precedents codified in the civil, federal civil rules and taught in first year civil procedure, summary judgment is only appropriate if, after, assuming all facts and allegations, assertions made by the non-moving party, appellants, in this case, to be true, and drawing all reasonable inferences from the evidence in the non-moving party's favor, it can be determined that there is no genuine dispute of any material issues of fact. Moreover, can you help me understand what facts do you believe are genuinely in dispute that are material? Identify one, two, or three, the most important. The most important one, I believe, Your Honor, is whether or not um, the policy, uh, the alleged policy of the defend appellants, appellees, excuse me, um, was race-based or um, race or ethnicity applied. Um, out of nowhere, we get an affidavit from the appellee's manager saying, um, this is our policy and it is unilaterally and equally applied to all customers. There is no evidence in the record other than the affidavit of the manager who was not present at any of these events. Um, on the other hand, we have the uh, testimony, deposition testimony, of the appellants, a uh, number of the appellants. One, uh, I believe it was Nekdi Gaska, who indicated that she was told by one of the waitresses during the uh, incident in January that the reason for this um, application of this policy to uh, this family of Latino women was because they have problems with uh, people of color. Then we have the um, evidence of, I believe it was uh, Ms. Tybe, who indicated that while she and her uh, fellow um, 
diners ate or waited, excuse me, they never got to eat, <laughs> waited to, be, uh, to get their food. They observed uh, a white party, a Caucasian party, come in, sit down, receive their um, water, their drinks, their appetizers, their meal, uh, their dessert, um, finish their meal, and then pay by uh, credit card, uh, all the while this group of black women uh, sat and waited in the back around an ottoman, uh, excuse me, around a coffee table in an ottoman. Um, and then I believe we have some additional testimony from, uh, I believe it was Miss Aaliyah Sullivan or Mr. Williams, um, in which they indicated that they did not see anyone else during the brunch uh, being uh, asked to prepay, and they were the only uh, couple of color in the restaurant at the time. Um, I believe that's sort of the core of the issue. So with respect to the statement of the waitress, um, that's hearsay. You can't bind the defendant because she's not a manager. So under the admission of, par of a party opponent rules uh, or exception or hearsay definition, however you want to articulate it, statement by the waitress um, um, is not admissible to prove um, um, the defendant's liability or to be um, so I'm not sure where that gets you. I would. You, 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 you do agree that that's the way that I think it's rule 802, the admission of party opponent rule works. I agree, Your Honor. However, we do have the statement of Mr. Karagunas on the uh, website where he says, this is our policy, and he does that more than once. I understand. I guess what I'm trying to understand is the theory of your lawsuit is, is, is well, if, if you say that the theory of your lawsuit is that they did this because they um, had issues with people of color um, in their mind um, not paying, and that's the reason that motivated them to create the policy. I don't see how that gets you a claim, um, even if that were true, um, unless the policy were discriminatorily enforced. Even if there was a discriminatory basis for creating the policy, if the policy was implemented with respect to all customers, then I don't see how um, you have a claim. Am I missing something there? Yes, Your Honor, and the, the fact is, it is our contention and the evidence shows that this policy, whether it be legitimate or not, um, is not unilaterally applied. Well, that's that's I'm trying to separate these two things. One is you seem to be saying that one of the disputed issues of fact is was the policy race based? I took that to mean that you were saying that, well, we think that the policy was was created for some sort of racially discriminatory reason. I guess what I'm saying to you is that I don't see how that's really 
a material dispute of fact because, one, the only evidence you have of that is one statement that's hearsay that doesn't fit within the admission of a party opponent. So you don't have any evidence other than that that I saw from the briefing that the policy is race-based. So you don't have any admissible evidence of that. But secondly, even if you did, I don't understand your theory to be that, well, just because it's race-based, it's illegal even if it were applied to all customers the same. I don't see that argument in your brief. Or is that argument in your brief? And what's the support for that argument? I don't believe we argue that directly. I believe the argument is that it is whatever the policy. First of all, we don't necessarily believe that it is a legitimate policy because we, the appellants, asked for documentation of this policy and were not able, not given anything in discovery. And as a matter of fact, during discovery, we were, the appellants, or excuse me, appellees, indicated that there is no written documentation or anything other than this affidavit that they produced that indicates that there is such a policy. So the policy issue itself is suspicious. We also asked about training on this practice, and they said there is nothing. It's just verbal. The issue that is most critical, I believe, is to the extent there, even if there is a policy, it is not applied unilaterally. It is not applied to all customers. So you seem to be saying a couple of different things there. One is that you think that there is a dispute of fact as to whether there actually is a policy. Is that one of the? That may be also a dispute, Your Honor, because they say that there is a policy, but on the one hand, they say there's a policy. On the other hand, they can produce nothing related to this policy other than this verbal statement. I have to admit, I had a lot of trouble with this case in the sense that there's supposed to be, under the federal rules and under the local rule, a statement by the moving party of what they believe the undisputed facts are. And then the opposing party is supposed to go through point by point and indicate, we dispute this fact, and here's the evidence that disputes this fact, or we don't dispute this fact, so that the district court can then know, okay, what facts is the plaintiff claiming to be in dispute here, and then can make a ruling as to whether this fact really is in dispute or not. I couldn't make heads or tails of the pleadings to figure out whether that was really done here, because there were these voluminous statements of undisputed facts and voluminous responses, and it was very hard for me to get to the bottom of that. But I guess where I'm going with all of this is that 
I didn't really, maybe I missed it, but um, to the extent that you are arguing and you argued in your opening brief that there's a dispute of fact as to whether there really is a policy, what is the evidence that you have that places it into dispute? Because if they have a witness who testifies under oath by affidavit or declaration that we had the policy and they have um, 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 your clients who testify under oath that they were told that there was such a policy, what is the evidence that places into dispute whether there was such a policy at all? The, the fact that def uh, we requested from the uh, defendants, appellees, copies, any kind of documentation other than just the verbal statement of this I policy. I have policies for what my clerks can't do, and what my secretary can or can't do. I don't have it all written down. Does that mean that I... I don't really have a policy. Well, with regards to an operation involving a one-on-one -on -one relationship, I think it's different when you're operating restaurants. And in this particular case, you have uh, supposedly a, they're alleging that there is this policy. However, when they're asked for the policy, when they're asked for training uh, information regarding the individuals who are allegedly uh, required to enforce or apply this policy, there is nothing. They they admit they have nothing. Um, Let me ask you, counsel, under uh, Brady and our three-part uh, test, um, the defendants say they have this policy. And at least the facts of this case uh, it's sort of an interesting policy in the sense that there are exceptions to it. And so far as I can see from the factual case you do present that's admissible, Your argument in part is not only did the district court state the summary judgment standard in the defendant's favor, and I would agree that the way it was framed, it was framed quite negatively, but the district court opinion does include in there would you not agree that he was obligated to view uh, the record most favorably to your clients? That is my correct. second point would be that in these discrimination cases, if you isolate each fact, you can say no discrimination that's unlawful. But if you put it all together, 
something was going on here that your clients under oath say was discriminatory. So at least to your prima facie case, if you have to show it, could say it's made. And then the defendants come along and say, we have this policy. And I didn't really see you arguing that there was no policy in the sense that I thought your argument was the defendants may say they have a policy. And let's even assume they have a policy. But there are exceptions to it. And at least your client's view is that it was not being applied across the board, that they were being treated differently. And they were being treated differently because of their race. As I understand it, that's your case that you presented to the district court. And the district court basically came back, as I understood it, and said, you just haven't offered enough evidence. And in the, uh, their brief, they point out how there's all this that could be presented at trial to show that your clients can't, or that you wouldn't win a jury trial. But that's not where you are, as I understand it. So the question in my mind is under our Brady decision, and I was proceeding on the ground that under Brady, defendants had established that there was a policy. And your argument is maybe so, or even assuming that, but there's no showing that it was applied across the board. And the defendant's response is, all you offered was speculation. You don't have any, you don't offer any evidence that the policy was not you don't offer proffer any evidence that were you to go to trial. This policy was not applied to everybody who was in the restaurant. And that there wasn't enough to show, given the defendant's explanation for the policy, and why it was what the business reason that the defendant offered, that that simply was not enough to meet your sort of threshold burden here. How do you respond to that argument? First, with regards to the any explanation as to business reasons, um, this brings us to the issue of uh, trial by affidavit. Uh, when you talk about... Counsel, uh, I'm trying to get you to move beyond that, all right? Okay. Uh, because I didn't understand, and maybe I misunderstood. I thought your argument was there's, the defendants say they have some sort of policy. 
And my clients have offered evidence that it was applied in a discriminatory manner, unlawfully. And the district court basically took the position that there's a lot of speculation here, that your clients have offered evidence of what they think was happening, but they have no evidence. They don't even proffer that were this to go to trial, they could present evidence that this policy, however vague it may be, and it's not in writing, wasn't being, at least as the defendants describe it, wasn't being applied across the board. If I may respond? Please, yes. We have three separate incidents involving three different groups of minorities at three different times. These minorities didn't know each other other than there was a family of the Valleys. There was the group that was with the T. Spence. And then there was the Williams and Sullivan group. These three groups all offer testimony that the same thing or similar thing happened to them. They did not observe anyone else who was Caucasian being asked to pay, to prepay for their meals. The three separate incidents arising at three separate times mutually corroborate each other, and I believe are sufficient to take to a jury. In addition to the testimony of, with regards to the separate incidents and the three separate groups who were strangers to each other before this litigation, we also have the testimony of Ms. Teeb and Ms. Spence, who during the occasion with their girlfriends were sitting there and watching what happened with the Caucasian group when they came in. And with regards to Ms., excuse me, the Valle family, we do also have evidence apart from what may be considered hearsay, evidence proffered by, I believe, all of the Valle members that they did not see anyone else being required to prepay. And if you keep in mind that the restaurant, excuse me, the nightclub had just closed, so people were shifting from the nightclub to the restaurant. So it would be assumed that if this policy was even-handedly applied, the Valle family would have seen this policy be applied to other patrons of the restaurant. They saw no such thing. In addition, once they decided that they weren't going to prepay, the sequence of events that followed would seem to, or is sufficient enough to take to a jury to indicate that this policy, to the extent it is a policy, is applied in a discriminatory fashion. So with respect to the Sunday brunch, 
there was testimony presented by the affidavit and maybe elsewhere that there were basically two ways that brunch could be set up. You could either pay online and reserve your table and show up, or you could go in and eat brunch and then pay, you know, after at the restaurant. Right. And so um, to the extent that your clients didn't see other people paying um, what the defense argues, and I think what the district court ruled is that that doesn't really give you enough evidence to go to um, a jury there because there's, there's, we don't know that there were like any other people who were similarly situated to your clients at lunch in the sense that, that they came in without having paid the, in advance that that appears to be the reason so 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 give me your response to that if if i'm wrong about the reasoning please correct me or if if i'm correct that that is the reasoning and that is the argument tell me why that argument um shouldn't be um adopted by us the argument shouldn't be adopted by this court because would be trial by affidavit, which is precluded by Supreme Court. But you're, you have the burden of proof in the case to prove the discriminatory application. And when you refer to affidavit, I assume you're referring to the defendant's affidavit? Yes. But you, in discovery, you know, ordinarily what you might do in a case like this where you're testing whether there's a policy and what its nature is, what its roots are, mm-hmm. is to notice a deposition and you can even if you don't know who adopted the policy you know do it under rule 30b6 and say please produce for deposition the individual with knowledge about this policy then you would not be here with leaning on their uh, declarations but you didn't do that so you have we did declarations are are competent on summary judgment because presumably the declarant can then come into court at trial. So that's, I mean, we, we have de- declarations affidavits all the time at summary judgment. In discovery, we requested policy, the policy, we requested the training, any evidence right, of the training. We don't have paper on it. We don't <laughs> have anything of any nature with regards to the existence of the policy with regards to the training that anybody receives, regards, it just doesn't exist. But to surmount summary judgment, you need to then go up and say, why do you think that's suspicious? I mean, many businesses, especially things like food industry, they don't run on paper. They run on person-to-person contact. And so if you think that's opening up a lot of leeway for discriminatory application, it's your burden to show that. And so when you talk about trial by affidavit, I mean, that is summary judgment. It's giving us the dry run off in an affidavit form or a deposition transcript. Well, in this case, while we only have the affidavit of the 
excuse me, appellee's manager, we have eight depositions of plaintiffs, which are being dismissed by the district court. I don't think so. I think the question is, what do they show on the pertinent point? They show what people observe, but they also say, well, why did I think it was discriminatory? I can't think of any other reason. Or, you know, what's the basis for your conviction that it's discriminatory? It's just speculation. It made me feel suspicious. Well, I think what the court is referring to is an inference drawn from the facts. And drawing inferences from the facts is the jury's province, not judge. And in this case, I believe the appellants had more than sufficient testimony based upon the entire record of what happened to them and what they observed to take it to a jury and let the jury decide whether or not those observations, those incidents, those events were sufficient in the jury's mind to draw the inference that there was discriminatory behavior. So here's, I guess, follow up on Judge Pillard's question, kind of get to the brass tacks. With respect to the brunch, let's suppose there was a trial and the evidence was essentially the same as what we have in the record now. Is that your clients testified that they were asked to pay, they looked around, they didn't see anybody else asked to present a credit card. How would the jury conclude without knowing anything else, whether the other people who weren't asked to present a credit card, how would the jury know whether or not those people had already paid online? It would be, if there was nothing else in the record that was an indicia, a possible indicia of discriminatory conduct or a disparate treatment. But there is more in the record with regards to the brunch incident. In the record, and there's deposition testimony, that before being allowed to enter the brunch, Mr. Williams was searched, body searched. And Ms. Sullivan was also searched. And they said they did not observe anyone else being searched. You then get into the restaurant and they're told to sit anywhere. Then they go and do what they're, one goes to the bathroom, the other goes to the buffet. And before they can get back, barely get back, they're asked to prepay. Now, the question becomes, is their observation, because they had a conversation with the manager or bouncer, whoever he was, and the waitress indicating that this is unusual. We don't, I've never done this before. We also have, we also have testimony. Never done what before? Never been asked to prepay before. We also have testimony in the record. The plaintiffs say they've never been asked to prepay. That's correct. We also have testimony in the record. But I'm not sure that that 
proves anything with respect to whether that's unusual for this restaurant. I was about to add to that. We also have in the record the testimony of Ms. Vallier, who had been to the restaurant numerous of times and had never been asked to prepay um, for. But she explains that herself by saying that she was with an individual who was a friend of the owner of individual who's in the restaurant industry. And so she knew that the policy wasn't being applied to them because she thought they were being calm. She never knew that the policy wasn't being applied to them. She didn't know there was a policy. Exactly. So it's just she herself characterizes in a way where it's not it's not indicative of anything. And presumably she also was her same self and her same race and ethnicity at that time. That's correct. I still, um, it is our position that given the record, notwithstanding that these are observations, unfortunately, a lot of times, Discriminatory conduct is based on observation. It is rare that a defendant or a party will come and say to you, because you are black or because you are Latino, I'm doing thus and so. It has to be inferred from the circumstances. It has to be inferred from the body language. It has to be inferred from corroborating other incidents. It has to be inferred from the sense of the individual who is- I agree with all of that. Just to kind of get get to the nub of it. I think that the brunch, I think, is a, is a more difficult thing evidence-wise for me to understand what evidence that a jury could have other than speculation where where we don't know the circumstances of these other people who were being observed by the plaintiffs. If all of those people had prepaid online, then their observations that they didn't see them being asked for credit cards kind of doesn't really prove anything. I think that the circumstances are a lot different and a lot stronger for you for the after 10 p.m. situation because there, everybody should be similarly situated, right? Everybody who's coming from the nightclub or coming in after 10 p.m., they haven't, there's, there's no evidence that any of them would have prepaid online before they got there, at least that I saw on the record. So to the extent that the plaintiffs say, we come in, it's after 10, we're asked to prepay, we see all of these other people come in also after 10, we don't see any of them as, you know, presenting credit cards or any form of payment to either run a tab or to prepay, however you want to um, call it. To me, um, that's easier to infer um, from the plaintiff's observations that there is a disparate treatment so I think that like the after 10 p.m. seems to be a different kind of circumstance than the brunch. That's that's why I'm just trying to like nail down exactly what this evidence is that causes there to be a dispute of fact with respect to kind of each of the sets of claims. I think, as I as mentioned before, if each of these claims was a separate case 
happening at a completely separate time in separate jurisdictions. If there was just one case, indeed, we would be in a situation of, well, is that's what the, plaint- the, the plaintiffs think or the appellants think, and we'd have to do this inference. But we have three, we have a pattern of behavior with this particular defendant. And this pattern of behavior is, there's sufficient evidence in the record, we believe, to survive summary judgment because the pattern of behavior is indicative that this alleged policy is only applied to minorities. Even when there are Caucasian customers present. So I would agree with the court. If it is only one incident, one incident, and there was just one case alone. That's that's not my point. My point is that you just kind of break it in down to brass tacks. The evidence seems a lot weaker for the Williamses um, claim with respect to brunch versus the Valles and the um, um, Teeb and Spence plaintiffs who are late at night the, because, because the late at night plaintiffs um, seem to be kind of by definition similarly situated to whoever else comes into the restaurant well, at, you know, at that time, whether they're black or white or whatever. Uh, whereas we don't know whether um, the plaintiffs who um, came in for brunch, Williams and Sullivan, um, are similarly situated to the people that they saw that weren't asked for credit cards. You get my point? I, I understand your point, Your Honor. Uh, however, to that point, um, the there is testimony that there was no uh, signage or any kind of other information indicating that this was a prepay or pay online type of brunch. There was um, there was no indication at the time when the uh, couple came in that um, this was a pay in advance kind of brunch. Um, I think we've all probably gone to lunches where you either pay online or pay in advance. But we've also gone to lunches, brunches probably where, um, and I know I have, where uh, it's a set price and it is after you've had your meal that you are asked to pay. So that this practice um, that defendants allege to be uh, benign is suspect in that regard, um, also, again, when you put all of this together, the three incidents together, there is a pattern of behavior that is evident. And if the court completely disregards all of the plaintiff's evidence, which it is not allowed to do, um, and if the court weighs credibility which it is not allowed to do, it must assume that the allegations, assertions, depositions of testimony, et cetera, of the appellant plaintiffs is true. With that assumption and drawing inferences 
We believe there was more than sufficient evidence from the plaintiffs, appellants, to take this matter, to survive summary judgment and take this matter before a jury. Judge Rogers, any further questions? I, did you reserve time for- Yes, I did, two minutes. All right, we'll give you your rebuttal time, even though Thank you kept you over. And we'll hear now from Mr. Krause. Thank you, Ms. Ferron. Thank you, and good afternoon. Scott Krause on behalf of the appellees. As has been revealed in the questions from Your Honor during appellant's presentation, this case is truly about the absence of any evidence to take this case to a jury. There are no disputed material facts, and the appellees went through painstaking efforts at the district court level before Judge Nichols to lay out a very detailed statement of undisputed facts, and no disputed facts were identified by the plaintiffs below. There aren't- Let me see if I understand what you're saying. You filed statements of undisputed fact, which you're required to do under the federal rules and under the district court's local rules. Yes, Your Honor. Are you saying that the plaintiffs didn't file responses to those at all, or are you saying that they filed responses to your statements that did not dispute any of your lists of undisputed facts? It's a little bit of a hybrid, as I recall, Your Honor. I do not recall that there were actually listings of facts allegedly in dispute. There were certainly arguments made in which the plaintiffs below added more detail on the factual record in support of their arguments, but I intentionally, Your Honor, put the entire factual record before Judge Nichols below, all of the depositions in their entirety. The interest- Okay, but that's what we're trying to get at. I mean, that's a matter of form, not substance. You put them all in one place, the plaintiffs put them in different. We're trying to get at the heart of this, all right? So that was, I thought, the thrust of Judge Wilkins' question. Right, and what I'm arguing, Your Honor, is assuming the truth of all the plaintiffs' allegations, there is just no tribal issue. There is- I'm trying to ask something different. I'm sorry. Because candidly, if I had been the district judge and you had filed what you filed, I would have required you to refile or I would have just, I don't know, I would have screamed, because the goal on summary judgment is to kind of pare down what are the key facts that are material to deciding the case. And to the extent that one side or the other believes that those key facts aren't really in dispute, then they say that, and then they show the evidence that shows that they're not in dispute. And then the other side can say, well, no, that key fact really is in dispute because we have testimony that contradicts the testimony of the moving party. What I'm trying to get at is in the district court, did the plaintiffs say, they identified this fact that they said is not in dispute. 
We disagree. That fact very much is in dispute, and it's in dispute because we have this deposition testimony X. Did they do that? No, they did not. And the testimony via affidavit from Mr. Aguilar is not in dispute. It spells out the reason and the rationale for two different policies at Rewind, and that is a policy after 10 o'clock of requiring prepayment or collateral put up for anyone who comes in. The brunch issue is entirely separate, and I think Your Honor addressed that in questions to appellant's counsel. But there is simply no evidence that those policies... Well, let me just cut to the chase here. It's been a long morning. I want to get to the nub of this. If plaintiffs testify that, you know, we are people of color, we come in, it's after 10 o'clock, we're told that there's a policy where we have to prepay and present credit cards, but we look around at everybody else who's come in after 10 o'clock who happen to be white, and we don't see any of them presenting credit cards, why isn't that enough to raise a dispute of fact as to whether or not this policy is being applied discriminatorily? Because the record does not support any of the plaintiff's ability to say, I looked around and I didn't see white people not being required to prepay. Ms. Plazas, when she was deposed, conceded she had no reason to believe any other patron was allowed to order without prepaying. Ms. Gaska said she did not pay attention to whether any other customer was permitted to order without prepaying. Ms. LeBay said she did not observe anyone else order food at Rewind and does not know whether anyone else was asked to prepay for meals. She went on to say, I don't know if it's racial or discrimination, but I don't think you treat customers like that. Ms. Valle said she did not see any Caucasian patrons at Rewind be seated or served without prepaying. She could only speculate that minorities would have to prepay, but Caucasians would not. I specifically asked each of the Valle plaintiffs if they observed anyone else at Rewind that night not being asked to prepay, and they had no evidence. And if we turn to Tyvin Spence, all they were able to say when they were deposed is that they observed a table with Caucasian patrons settling up at the end of the meal with credit cards, multiple. But as pointed out from the record and consistent with Rewind's policy, seeing someone settle up at the end is not indicative in and of itself that they weren't asked to open a tab when they came in as collateral for the meal. Settling up doesn't mean a credit card wasn't given. And so there is virtually no evidence whatsoever in the record from which a trier of fact could conclude, reasonably conclude, that Rewind did not apply this policy uniformly. And counsel speaks to a cumulative series of events or a pattern. All the pattern of this three series of events shows is conduct by Rewind consistent with its established policies. There's no evidence that those policies were applied in a disparate manner. 
it seems like at least bad business practice. I mean, I'm not a, in, in the restaurant business, but to have a policy that's out of line with the typical policy. I mean, at a bar, you do have to open a tab. Typically at a food establishment, you don't. And I, you know, there are plausible business reasons for having such a policy, but the fact that there's nothing in paper anywhere and there are no signs anywhere for to just tell people when they're coming in so that the servers aren't having to have these unpleasant interactions with with people who are unfamiliar um, does make one wonder whether this actually is a policy or whether it's just something that some of the servers decide to ask about because they've had problems in the past. Um, and I especially wondered that seeing your interrogatory number four, which says, stay whether on any occasion you ever witnessed other pat patrons be informed of a requirement to prepay. And if so, you know, tell us about it. It sounds like if that's a question coming from an establishment that denies having a requirement to prepay. Well, no, no, Your Honor, that was my effort to find out whether or not plaintiffs actually had any evidence that would sub, sub, support their claim. And I look as but a, you don't ask. And, and by the same token, did you ever see anyone uh, not be required to pre pre come in and actually not be required to prepay, be seated, be served without being? So you don't ask that question, which is the question one would expect if we're trying to come up with comparators in an establishment that actually does have this policy. Perhaps it should have been a better worded interrogatory, Your Honor, and that, that, that may have been a typographical error. I don't recall, but I explored all of those issues in depth when, when I deposed these, these plaintiffs. And, Your Honor, you may be right that it may be a better business practice to post a sign or have something in, in writing, but that doesn't make it unlawful. When you read Mr. Aguilar's affidavit and you understand this is a crowded establishment. I do understand. Middle I, of the I night. I do understand. Right. It's, I'm saying that right. it's, it's, a, um, it's an unusual policy. And as you've experienced, some of the people feel that it's inhospitable and they may feel that they may wonder why it's being directed at them or whether it's being applied to them. If there's no sign, if there's nothing really, you know, removing that that concern or that um, inference. And I, and I understand that. And I'm certainly, it's certainly a shame that we live in a society where people would be made to feel that way. But the point of, of this exercise is there's simply no evidence that can go to a, a jury to prove in any way that this policy wasn't applied uniformly to any, to everyone or that people of Latina or black or, or black patrons were singled out solely for, for the application of the policy. Well, let's play devil's advocate for a minute. You would agree with me that um, the normal practice in a restaurant is to present payment at the end of the meal, a form of payment at the end of the meal. I would concede that that was, is normal in certain establishments with, with waitstaff, not exclusive, but yes. So I guess the other side of it is that if you're going to do something that's abnormal, that might cause there to be some sort of um, questions or hard feelings 
or just kind of make it more difficult for your wait staff who are trying to, you know, keep customers happy and not have them mad at them so that they'll get tips so that they, you know, that's why they're working to make money. That one would, um, it would be in everyone's interest within the company to post that policy so that there wouldn't be any questions or concerns or disputes or arguments or suspicions so that the customers will be happy, so that they will be big tippers. And the fact that it's not written anywhere, it's not on the menu, it's not on the sign, it's not on the website, it's not anywhere. I mean, we assume usually that people act reasonably and in their interests. It would be reasonable and in the restaurant's interest to post a policy. So if they didn't do that, and why isn't that evidence that there ain't really no policy? I will accept, Your Honor, that posting may be a better business practice. But as pointed out, there's no legal requirement to post a policy. And as Mr. Aguilar said in his affidavit, until the events that gave rise to this particular lawsuit, the restaurant had never had any complaint with regard to any patron being asked to prepay. So they had never experienced that problem before these incidents. Do we know from the record how long this policy had been in effect? Standing here at this moment, Your Honor, I do not recall. I do not believe that is in Mr. Aguilar's affidavit. So it could have been yesterday before these particular plaintiffs, these particular defendants. I know it was prior to these plaintiffs coming to the restaurant, Your Honor, because they said it was an established policy at the restaurant. Mr. Aguilar. Who says it? Mr. Aguilar, the operations manager. Oh, I understand that. There's no evidence. You know, when you're challenged, you say, well, this is an established policy. All right. That's what the nature, it seems to me, of Judge Wilkins' questions are getting to. All right. And to what extent the plaintiffs benefit from that? And your argument, I think, is that all the admissions that were made during discovery destroy the inferences on which the plaintiffs need to rely. Correct. There's simply no evidence to present to a jury in this case to suggest in any way that Caucasian customers were not asked to prepay in accordance with the policy. Well, I wasn't clear from the record that there were any Caucasians in the restaurant at this time of night. I mean, that was one of the issues. Well, certainly Ms. Tibb and Ms. Spence identified there being Caucasian customers in the restaurant that evening. At what time, Your Honor? It was early morning hours after 2.30 a.m. Okay. So after the bar had closed. After the other clubs in the area had closed. Yes. 
I've seen I've gone over my time. If, if your honors have no further questions. Any questions? Thank Mr. you. Rogers, any further questions? All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Krause. Ms. Perone, you have two minutes for rebuttal. I will focus my two minutes on the issue of disputed and undisputed facts. Contrary to representation of counsel, and I'll be happy to provide this to the court, there was a point-by-point dispute as to disputed facts contained in the plaintiff's opposition to defendant's motion for summary judgment. Not only, they had something like 230 sentences or assertions. There was a response or dispute as to each one of those statements, and they were matched up to the statements of the defendant. So for there to be any representation that there were no disputed facts, or we presented no disputed facts at the lower level, is inaccurate. And as again, I would happily supplement this record with the... We can look at the docket and see. I just hadn't done that before this argument. And in the future, that's the first thing you should put in a summary judgment, J.A. It's just, it's the roadmap. Well, that's one counsel's way. Yeah, it's important. It's not a rule, all right? Well, a part of summary judgment is the statement of disputed facts. And there was a section that was submitted to the court, not in the appellant appeal documents, but there was a section called disputed facts. We'll look, or at least I'll definitely look at the district court for that. What about your friend on the other side saying that none of the plaintiffs actually testified that they really had an opportunity to observe Caucasian diners at night, you know, get their food and not being asked to present a credit card? Ms. Teep and Ms. Spence both testified that while they, I believe Ms. Teep for sure, Ms. Spence in part, testified that while they were waiting to get their order after, and then they were told the order was never put in because they didn't give them a credit card or didn't prepay, they observed a group of Caucasian customers come in, be seated at regular tables, receive their menus, place their orders, receive their drinks, their water, their appetizers, and their meal, dessert, I assume, and then pay afterwards. The difference, there's a difference between settling up and a different, and prepaying. I noticed that counsel talks about there were multiple credit cards. I'm not sure the record bears that out with regards to the observations of Ms. Teep and Ms. Spence. But even if there was a settling up, settling up may have to do with the difference between what you ate. But it does not say that these individuals were asked to prepay. There is a dispute as to what these individuals, namely this white group of customers, were doing and the practice applied to them versus the black customers and how they were being treated. In addition... Let's 
assume for the sake of argument that I agree that there is a dispute of fact as to what happened on that night with Ms. Steve and Spence and also on the other evening. Can you get past summary judgment based on merely those two instances where the policy was not taking the facts in the light most favorable to the plaintiffs where the policy was not implemented fairly or it was implemented discriminatorily? Or do you need to, in order to get past summary judgment, you need to establish a pattern in practice? I think that the pattern in practice is important in this particular case. Again, if there had just been one incident, we probably would not be sitting here. But contrary to the representations of counsel, Ms. Valle testified that she did some research online and found numerous other complaints by minority customers indicating that this had happened to them. How is any of that admissible? It would be, I believe, admissible with regards to what, if they are going to assert that there are no other complaints, then it would be admissible as to counter their assertion that there's no other complaints. But, I mean, that's all, I guess that's all hearsay. I don't see how that proves the truth of those matters asserted in those other complaints without getting declarations from those parties that that is what happened to them. No, I think if we have, and she did research online, so what she was looking at would be online reviews. And those online reviews, provided they had not been taken down now, would be still available online. But I don't understand how any of that is competent evidence in a court of law. That's what I'm getting at. Well, the issue, the statement was made by a counsel that there were no other complaints. Let me just try to narrow down here. I'm just trying to understand the law here. Do you have to prove a pattern and practice of discrimination to get past summary judgment? Yes or no? Yes. Sure, that's your answer. Well, it's a nuanced answer. When you say a pattern of practice, is it, we do not need to show that there was, as to all of these incidents, there's this underlying practice. If the appellees discriminated against the black group of patrons just once, in this particular instance, revolving a restaurant serving food, that would be sufficient to get past summary judgment. If we're talking about employment and other types of discrimination, I think you're involving the pattern and practice concept. However, 
That's not how I how I understand the law. You can either prove just an individual instance or you can prove a pattern of practice and you may get different relief. But the difficulty is when you're trying to prove an individual instance, you have to show either direct evidence of discrimination. Someone spoke in a biased way or a policy was reported in a way that reflects bias based on race or you often raise inferences by showing similarly situated people who, but for their race, are in the same position as the plaintiffs and are treated differently. And that's why there's so much attention and why I think Mr. Krauss is saying, you know, people aren't actually claiming that they either saw white plaintiffs, white patrons not having the policy apply to them and or other patrons of color having it applied, the inference doesn't arise. I mean, this may just be a completely irritating policy. And if I'm black and I go into an an establishment that doesn't have a written policy and they start doing really sort of irritating and mistrustful seeming policy to me, one of the things that crosses my mind is going to be, are they doing this to me only because I'm black? What is the story? But then the question of, is that accurate? Is you have to go a step further. You know, I absolutely can see how each of these plaintiffs would wonder that. And then the question is, have they gone the next step and shown it so that someone who wasn't there and wasn't them would say, Oof, I, I see that it really is being unevenly applied. Two points. One, with regards to uh, Ms. Sullivan and Mr. Williams, they don't both testified that they did not observe anyone else being treated that way. They also, uh, I believe, testified that they were the only black customers at the uh, uh, venue. And um, I think that the question here is, Did we, it's not, the standard is not the same at summary judgment as if we were at trial. In order to, as the court knows, to uh, survive summary judgment, you have to assume that the assertions and allegations of the plaintiffs are true and take the inferences in their favor. Now, whether you want to, if you call it speculation, I know that as a black woman, there have been many a time when somebody has done something to me and I believe that it is discriminatory, but that person did not say to me that they were doing this because I was a black woman. And I could observe that they did not do the same thing to someone coming along. So with, in, in discrimination cases, I think the issue of inference becomes crucial to the individual's perception. And I think the inference part of the uh, evaluation is to remain with the jury. It is not to remain, it is not to be the judge's uh, uh, I, I need to interrupt to just just clarify something. So, so let's assume that 
if the evidence showed that on every other day that um, the restaurant operated, they had a policy and it was applied with respect to everyone uniformly. But, so we had like videotapes, whatever we need, to like prove that with beyond the shadow of a doubt. But that the evidence at least created a dispute as to whether or not they treated blacks and whites differently on these three particular occasions. Right. Um, that's what I was getting at when I asked you the question earlier about whether you have to prove a pattern in practice to survive summary judgment. Let's suppose they performed beautifully, completely race neutrally on every other day, but for whatever reason, on these three days, these wait staff who, who waited on your clients um, decided that they were going to um, 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 apply the policy or apply a policy discriminatorily with respect to them. The way that these various different anti-discrimination statutes work that are the basis of your claims, do you surpass, is that, is that enough for you to get past summary judgment or do you need to have evidence that there is a kind of a practice of discrimination as opposed to one-off discrimination on these three occasions? I think all we have to establish is that there was, as to each of the plaintiffs, there was one experience of discrimination. I do not think the law requires us to show, uh, appellants to show a pattern of practice as to each of these plaintiffs. I think that if we have been established sufficiently through the um, the testimony and other evidence that has been proffered by the plaintiffs uh, that there was evidence that the plaintiff was treated disparately, that one individual was treated disparately, and there was a distinction in race or something that is prohibited, then it would be um, incumbent upon the defendants to come forward and say, that there was a legitimate reason for this. And if there, we would still then have the opportunity to come back and say that this is pretextual. This is not really the reason why they're doing it. The, re the reason why they're doing it is really because they're discriminating. So in, in the sense of, of pattern and practice, we don't have to have okay. a pattern I, and practice. I wanted to give you an opportunity yes. to clarify. I'm sorry. So, so one last oh. question I have for you. Oh, go ahead, Judge Rogers. No, go ahead. Is if someone is behaves in a really rude way to someone who's in a protected class, you know, woman, uh, African American, African American woman, someone of a, you know particular religion, and doesn't express it in a way that ties it to their protected class, which is really rude. That person might subjectively draw an inference. This is because you know, I'm Jewish. Or this is because I'm black. What do you need 
other than that inference? Like, is that inference enough in your view to take it to a jury? Or do you need more? And if so, what more? To distinguish between someone who just was rude and someone who was discriminatory. I will. In order to just you don't you need more than just I feel like I've been discriminated against. You need other evidence in the record, other behavior short of the person coming and saying to you, you know, I'm doing this because you're not you're not you don't have a mind reading machine. Yeah. If 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 they are, they just if they're just rude, that's they're just rude. However, if you have other evidence that would point to that, their rudeness was tied to the protected class, then you would have sufficient evidence to take it to a jury. I believe in this case, the appellants and plaintiffs below have provided more than enough evidence to show that this wasn't just, oh, we feel slighted. There were continuations of behavior. There was additional contextual behavior as to all of these three incidents. Also, with regards to Judge Wilkins, your question about videos, we asked for the videotaping and other kinds of evidence of the events and we were provided with nothing. So it is not for a lack of seeking evidence that would support the defendants or appellees in this case position that there is some legitimate business practice. The fact of the matter is their statement with regards to a legitimate business practice only came to four as a result of the summary judgment. They never provided anything. We had discovery before. They never had anything saying this is our business practice other than there was an answer to an interrogatory and then we have an affidavit. Was there an interrogatory that posed the question about business practice, whether or not there was a policy with respect to prepaying for meals? Yes. Did you propound an interrogatory? Yes. Yes. And what did that interrogatory say and what did they respond? Their response was we have a policy and the question was to provide not just we have a policy, but where's the evidence of this policy? Is it written anywhere? Is there a handbook? Is there training that's provided to managers? How do the wait staff get trained to know how to apply this? And we got absolutely nothing. We're stonewalled. There was not and actually we're not stonewalled. We were told explicitly there is nothing other than the verbal statement that there is a policy. But I guess I'm just trying to be precise here. Before the summary judgment briefing, you asked them if there was a policy and they said, yes, there is a policy, but we don't have any documentation. Because what you said earlier seemed to suggest that the first you heard of a policy at all was after you filed your summary judgment brief. Now, there was that's not the case. There was a delay in discovery. So the there was discovery that was propounded and there was a response 
And in the response, they said there was this policy. We asked about the policy, not just, you know, is there a policy, but we asked about evidence of the policy, training related to the policy, et cetera, et cetera. And we were told there's nothing other than our statement that there is this policy, which we believe the statement to be pretextual anyway. Anything further, Judge Rogers? All right. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you very much. Ms. Barone, Mr. Krause, case is submitted.